Yeah. All right. Hey, guys. Uh, thank you so much for having me up here tonight. My name is Cole Williams, and if you guys think that it's weird to see me up here, I can promise you that it's even weirder to be the one up here speaking. So, yeah, we got that going for us. Um, <laughs> for those of you who know me, um, I've never really had much of an issue talking. And so fortunately, tonight, I also don't think that's going to be much of an issue. Um, and I'm super excited to get to share with you all just a glimpse of kind of some of the things that God's been showing me over the last weeks since I've been working on this. Um, for those of you who are new here, the past couple of weeks, we, we've been going over the Sermon on the Mount. And I think, I think we see Jesus doing something incredibly unique here. So like just before he begins his sermon, he's traveling around and he's performing all these miracles and all these people are seeing him and... Kind of as this is happening, these crowds begin to gather and they begin to kind of follow him around. And Jesus, seeing this, decides that he kind of wants to address a different kind of healing. And the kind of healing that Jesus wants to address is the healing of the soul. Um, I'm sure that all of us in this room had really different upbringings with different kind of parents and different kinds of experiences. But one thing that I'd imagine that all of us had to do was probably clean our rooms. Um, so if you're a good kid, you did it. If you're a bad kid, you didn't do it. And if you're a really bad kid, you just pretended that you did it. And so I was a really bad kid. And so here's what I would do. I, uh, yeah, I would, I would grab everything off of my floor. But because I'm a nester, not a hoarder, sometimes people think that they're the same thing, but I promise that they're not, kind of. Um, so, but because I'm a nester, I would just find different areas in my room to move my stuff. And so I'd never actually clean it. I would just evenly distribute the things that were on my floor. So I'd put them like in like the hidden places where my parents wouldn't see them. So like in the closet, under my bed, and behind my dresser. Um, <laughs> and I would be like, yeah, I'm going to fool my parents. They're never going to see this coming. And <laughs> in theory, it'd work out pretty well because they would see that my room was clean. I'd get to go and do kind of whatever else I wanted to do for the rest of the day. But the thing I always forgot was that I am my parents' son, and they know exactly who their son is. And so... Um, they would come in and look at my room, and I'd think that I'd successfully fooled them, and they'd immediately go and check my closet. And then they'd go and they'd check under my bed, and they'd go and they'd check behind my dresser, and they'd see that nothing was actually clean. And so I'd just be totally exposed. And then I'd be stuck in my house for the rest of the day just actually cleaning my room because I hadn't done that before. Um, because here's what was true. Even though at first glance my room was clean, when you looked beyond what people would initially see, my room wasn't clean at all. I was just hiding the dirt. And I think that this is kind of what Jesus is doing here. So the people in the crowd had done a pretty good job at hiding their dirt in the hidden places. And our creator knows these places well. And so God isn't content with false cleanliness. And so what he's doing is he's bringing the dirt out into the light because that's exactly what he does, is he works in the light. And so... What we're jumping into tonight is known as Jesus' second triad of exegesis. It's this really obscure biblical thing. So if you ever want to impress anybody with some random biblical knowledge, there you go. Because um, you'll probably never need to know that again. But, you know. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew 5.33 with me because that's where we'll be starting tonight. So Jesus starts us off by saying, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. 
or in the CSB translation, it says, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Because anything more than this comes from evil. And so, guys, tonight the first thing that Jesus wants to address is our word. But he does something differently here than he's done up until this point in the sermon. We see Jesus kind of putting this special emphasis on like the power and authority of God. So like why? Because he didn't have to do that, right? I mean, he could have just said, you can't control everything, so just, so just do what you say that you're going to do. Or he could have just said, just straight up be people of your word, but he doesn't. No, instead he decides to show us God's dominion over all of creation. And he chooses to start this, this section of the Sermon on the Mount by reminding us of who our God is. And not just to remind us of who our God is, but to remind us of who we are in relation to God. Like, we can't even control the hair on our own head. And then Jesus does this really, really interesting thing where he says that anything more than a yes or a no isn't actually from God. It's like, what? You know, like that seems pretty, that seems relatively small given to all of the things that could be from evil, right? And I think to understand why Jesus says this, we actually have to, we actually have to know what the context of the crowd that Jesus was speaking to was. And so here, here's what was going on. In Old Testament law, it was required that if you made an oath to God, you had to actually fulfill it. And so people knowing this, they knew that if they made an oath to God, that that was something that you really had to do. It's like if you, if you said you were going to do something in God's name, you actually had to do that thing. But they would take the severity of an oath and attach it to other things that weren't God, like Jerusalem, and then they wouldn't actually end up doing these things. And <laughs> what Jesus is saying here is like, no, no, everything is God's. And so when you make an oath on anything, you're making it to God. And so you're actually putting yourself under that Old Testament Levitical law. And so with oaths bearing this especially high level of severity, Jesus is saying that, that we should actually be a people of such high integrity that we don't, we don't need to make an oath in order for people to believe what we say because we, because when we say something, like when we say that we'll do something, we actually end up doing it. And I mean, we've been hurt by people who don't do this, right? Like, we've had friends who have promised to do things with us only to bail when the moment actually came and we're stuck at home alone for the night, haven't we? Or maybe there's somebody who said that they would, that they would care about you, but they ended up being the ones who hurt you more than anybody. And I think, to be honest about it, we have to look at ourselves, too. Like, what about when you tell the person who you're only kind of friends with, who's struggling with something really serious, that you're always there to talk to them? Like, what happens when that person's actually calling you because they need to talk to you about something, but you know it's going to be really heavy, and so you just, like, find some reason to not answer that call? Or maybe you just screen them. Um, or maybe, maybe you're not that kind of person. Maybe you're really, really good at being there for people who are going through something really hard, but... When it comes to like meeting somebody who's new in town, you might tell them, hey, like, I'm going to get you plugged into everything that's going on here because I want, you to, I want you to experience this community that I've had. And then when the time comes to actually invite them to things, you're good with just hanging out with your close-knit group of friends, and they're left on their own. And guys, I'm not, I'm not standing up here <laughs> pointing a finger at anybody because if anybody knows me, they'll know that I am exactly this kind of person. 
I'm exactly the kind of person who doesn't hold true to their word. And, and I think what's true is that this is what so many of us are like, and it's actually a problem. But you know who isn't like this? God. <laughs> and so, like, every single word that God has ever spoken, he actually did. Our God is a speaking God. And so, like, does it really, does it really make us wonder why God would take our words so seriously? Like, when he, when he tells us that he's with us, he is. And when he tells us that he loves us, he does. And when he tells us that if we seek, we will find, we do. Because our God is a God of truth. He's a God who we can trust because when he tells us things, they are always absolutely true. And guys, this is super good news. And God isn't just calling us to just you know, be more honest sometimes. He's calling us to actually be a people of integrity, to share in this integrity that God has. God cares about our word. And so after saying this, Jesus begins to kind of like turn up the heat a little bit. And starting in verse 38, he says, You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And so guys, after our word, God wants to talk to us about our personal justice. And I don't know about you guys, but I think actually this section of scripture might be the hardest one for me to digest in the entire Bible, or at least one of them. I think that's probably because what Jesus is saying here is so unbelievably countercultural to what we know, isn't it? I mean, like, what we're, what we're raised to believe is to always look out for number one. Like, we're the ones that we need to care about. <laughs> because, like, when somebody wrongs us, we actually then have a right to wrong them back. And a lot of us, a lot of times we do, or at least we try to, right? And I think why this is so hard for us to swallow, even more than that, is because we know that if we actually do this, there's a pretty high chance that we'll get wronged again. And that the person who we're turning the other cheek to will probably slap us on the other cheek. <laughs> and Jesus isn't just talking about when we're wronged in general, but I mean, like, even when we're really, really wronged. Because in, in this time, getting slapped, like with the back of your hand, which is what would have been happening here, it's like your right hand, right cheek, would have been literally one of the most embarrassing things that could possibly happen to you. <laughs> and so like, imagine you're, you're in a group setting with a bunch of people you know, and these people respect you, and you're talking about something that you're really passionate about, and you're talking, and you're talking, and some random person from the group stands up, points at you, and says, no, you're wrong about this. And they don't just say that you're wrong about this, but they actually prove it, and they keep proving it. And everyone's watching this person just rebuke you in front of everybody. And they're not just doing this, they're actually doing it in like a super, super brutal way. Like, imagine how embarrassing that would actually be. And Jesus is saying in that situation, don't just not seek your personal justice. Like, don't just not respond, but actually let them keep doing it. Like, let them do it again. And don't just let them do it again, but serve them. 
If the person sues you for the shirt off your back, which I guess would probably be a bit of a process for just an item of clothing, but let's just say that they sued you all the way to the clothes off of your own back. Jesus is saying, don't just give them that shirt, but actually give them more than that on top of what you're already giving them. And I think you're probably hearing this and thinking to yourself like, no, Jesus actually wouldn't say or do this because our God is a God of justice. Cole, you are wrong. You are interpreting that verse wrong because there must be, there must be some way out of this. Like God wants justice for everyone. And I would say to that that you are mostly right. But here's the thing that you have to look at. Like, Jesus isn't addressing the court of law. He's addressing our personal justice. And we are not the judges because God is the God of justice. But even more than that, I want you to notice something else. Like, Jesus isn't saying that two wrongs don't make a right. Because I think in saying that, that would probably make it seem like he's He's negating the injustice that's actually happening. I want you guys to notice, like, Jesus is using really, really strong language here. Like, the person who's wronging you, they're not just wronging you, but they're actually acting in evil. Like, this is an evil person. And he continues to, to use strong language, and he's saying, like, no, like, this person is suing you, and this person is forcing you to walk with them one mile. Like, there's no, there's no sugarcoating that a wrong is being done here. Jesus is addressing that. And he's not negating it, but he's actually pleading with us to seek something more than our own justice. And I want to say before I continue that, like, there are some exceptions to this, right? Like, turning the other cheek and all of that. But, and we can talk about this after, but the exceptions are so few. And I think really often, when we come to a text like this, we look at the exceptions as a way to just get out of it entirely. And we end up actually missing the principle that Jesus is telling us here. And so when I was looking at this section of scripture, I was really nervous at how I wanted to approach it because I was struggling to balance what I'm reading with all of the social injustices and all of the wrongs that I see happening in the world right now. Like, we see racism and domestic violence and verbal abuse and all kinds of violence on top of all of the other things that a broken world comes with. And it's like, how can I go the second mile with somebody like that? Much less somebody who's actually in that situation experiencing the evil being done to them. But I had the opportunity to talk to an older, wiser friend of mine from our Veritas School of Theology, which is like a program that I'm in, and how to look at this beautiful thing that Jesus was saying and how to reconcile it with what I see in the world. And this is pretty much what he said. He dropped this bomb on me. He said, Jesus isn't saying that a wrong hasn't been done. He's acknowledging that a real evil has been done. But through this, Jesus is saying, is calling us not to forget who our father is. He's calling us not to lose our love and joy and pursuit of the father, to not lose our eternal perspective because of our earthly circumstances. God is a perfect judge and he'll enact perfect justice someday on some or he already did it for others on the cross. And so we can rest and rejoice in that. And you, I mean, you might be hearing me say that and it's like, why can I believe you? Because I'm just a college student in Iowa who really hasn't experienced a lot of this stuff. And 
I think the reason we can believe this is because this is exactly what Jesus did. And I think there's a super, super beautiful image of this in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, when it says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Like, we are not doing this on our own. Jesus isn't calling us to do something that nobody has done before. We're actually following the lead of the perfect man who died so that we could live. Like, the perfect man who had his eyes so fixed on the Father that he undeservedly went to the cross, and now he's inviting us to do the exact same thing. Let us live for righteousness, abandoning pursuit of our rights, just like our Savior did and does, and is, and is inviting us to share in. Friends, let us live for eternity. But Jesus doesn't just stop at turning the other cheek and going the second mile. Like if you keep reading, no, I mean, as it relates to others, Jesus is actually looking at our heart. And so he goes on to say, starting in verse 43, like, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so the third thing that Jesus wants to address tonight to us Jesus wants to address our heart and our love for these people. He wants to address our love for the people who have wronged us. And I think that this raises a really, really important question, doesn't it? It's like, can we actually do this? Or maybe even more, it's like, should we actually do this? Because maybe you could get on board with serving those who have wronged you. Maybe you could get on board with going the second mile. (laughs) but they are not deserving of your love. (laughs) Like, I can get on board with serving others because that's what I should do, but I'm doing it with the intention that someday they'll actually love me back and that they will be people that I can love. But I don't love them right now, right? Because love is this thing that's really, really close to my heart and is only reserved for people who actually deserve it and have earned it. But Jesus is saying here, no. No, don't. Don't just serve them, but love them while doing it. And, and don't just love them, but love them to the point where you actually pray for them. And guys, I think honestly, this might be even more countercultural than the last section we were just reading over. <laughs> because we, we see more and more that the people who we don't agree with should be silenced and we end up dehumanizing them. And I think 
whether we admit it or not, we see these exact people as people who are undeserving of our love. Like, I think the reason, the reason why Jesus, or why this call that Jesus gives us is even more difficult is because it's actually the only one of these three that nobody sees except for God. Like, you might be telling the truth, and somebody would see that, and they'd see that you're a person of integrity, and everybody loves a person of, a person of integrity. And you might even be serving those who wrong you. I mean, like, even those who really, really wrong you. And people might see that and be like, oh, that's a servant-hearted person, and everybody loves a servant-hearted person. But do you know what people don't see? People don't see the heart. They don't see what's inside of us. But Jesus does. And he's telling us that there's actually nothing special about loving those who already love us. Because everybody does that. (laughs) Do you know what is special? Loving the unlovable. Loving the people that we've deemed unworthy of our love. All of our stories are different. And so I think that the people who we find to be unlovable is totally different too. Like you might say, yeah, I'll love everybody. I'll pray for everybody. But you know who I won't love? My parents who silenced my voice growing up because they were supposed to love me unconditionally, but instead I felt like I only ever had to earn their love. Or maybe you're thinking, yeah, I don't have a problem loving people, but I won't love my ex-boyfriend or girlfriend because when I opened my heart up to them, they tore it in two, and so I can't ever love them again. Or maybe it's not even anything close to you. Maybe, maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, I can love everybody around me, but I cannot love the police officers I see performing police brutality because they don't value human life other than their own. Or maybe you're on the complete other side and you're like, yeah, I can love everybody, but I can't love the people who I see rioting because it seems to me like they're doing the exact same thing that the oppressors are doing. And I would say that your feelings and your reservations that you're having, that they're right. Because by so many of our standards of love, they don't actually deserve it. But you know what? By these exact same standards, neither do I. And neither do any of us. Because we all do heinous things. Either in our actual acts or in our hearts, because none of us deserve this love that we so quickly hold back from others. But here's what's true. Jesus doesn't care about that. Jesus doesn't care that there's no logical reason that we should be loved because Jesus has a more true, more beautiful standard of love than any of us would ever see on earth. And in this, he chose to love us deeper than we could ever imagine. Like, he loved us all the way until his death on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus saw that we were unlovable and still he chose to love us. And I think, I think what's so crazy about this section is that it says that there's a reward in actually doing this. And I'm reading this and I'm asking myself, like, what is this reward and why would I even want it? Because surely there's nothing good that can come out of something that feels so inherently wrong on the inside. Like, surely there can't be a reward for loving the people who have wronged me in worse ways than anybody ever could. But I'm going to push back against that. 
And I'm going to say that there's, there is something even more beautiful and satisfying and eternal than you could ever imagine in doing this. Like, let's look back at verse 45. It says that we do this so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Friends, when we, when we show grace and love towards others, it's a reflection of the grace and love that God has already shown us and is still to this moment showing us. And when we, when we love and we pray for our enemies, we give the world a taste of the cup of overflowing love that God continually gives to us. And I think honestly, truthfully, I think that the world is thirsting for people like this. I think the world is thirsting for people who are so high in integrity where you can actually always trust what they say. And I think the world is thirsting for people who are so countercultural that they love, and not only that, but they love to serve the people who hurt them. Like a drink of cool water on a hot day, the world is looking for people who can be a light for something greater than this world, for something more than what this world has to offer. And so I'm thinking after everything that I, that I read and everything that I just said, and it's like, okay, I think, I think I can tell the truth. Like, I think I can be a person of integrity who, when I tell people I'll do things, I'll actually do them. And, and I think I can grit my teeth, and I think, I think I can turn the other cheek. <laughs> and I think that I can serve those who wrong me. And, and I think I can maybe will my heart to love those who have wronged me more than anything. And then Jesus drops this bomb in verse 48. He says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And after reading it, I'm just like, all right, you know, like Jesus, you just moved the bar too high because if I thought maybe I could do it before, I can't actually do it perfectly like you can. Because guys, here's what's true. Is I can't actually do this. Like I can't actually be a person who always tells the truth. And I can't actually be a person who, who like <laughs> offers the other cheek and who serves those who persecute him and then who actually ends up loving those, those same people. Like I cannot be that kind of man. I mean, yeah, sure, maybe I could do this if you tried it on me in five minutes. What about tomorrow? What about next week or what about next month? And it's like, Actually, what if it's the same person over and over and over again who's wronging me and they're just being relentless with it? And actually, what if it costs me everything that I have to tell the truth because that's not what people want to hear? I can't actually be a person of such high integrity that what I say is always true. And I can't actually love those who seriously hurt me because I can't change my heart. I need somebody else to do it. But guys, here's, here's what's so beautiful about this verse. I think here's what makes this really, really hard thing to swallow. What ends up being actually one of the most beautiful things, I think, in all of Scripture is it says the word perfect, like when it says be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it actually implies this sense of completeness. Like it's, it's calling us to wholeness in the same way that our Father is whole. And even more than that, did you notice the change in how God is referenced from the beginning of this section to what we're reading now? 
Like in the very beginning, in verse 33, it says, like, God is just referenced as God. But then in verse 48, God is referenced as our Father. Like, do you see how this actually changes everything that we've just been reading about? It's not that we need to find it somewhere inside of ourselves to be these kinds of people. No, 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 no. We actually have a Father who's inviting us on a journey with him. A journey to completion. He's saying, I know you can't do this right now, but let me show you how. Let me show you how to live in the joy that I have always had. He's inviting us to do that with him. And I could try and wow you with some poetic speech, but I think, I think C.S. Lewis absolutely nails it in Mere Christianity when he says, the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through which such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly. His own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but it's what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. Friends, our Father is inviting us to share in the cup of delight that he's offering. In this very same cup of delight that he's always had. Jesus isn't giving us a new set of rules. He isn't giving us a set of rules in general. He's actually giving us a look into the heart of our Father. Not just saying that these are the kind of people that we need to be, but Jesus is asking us, why would we want to be anyone different? Why wouldn't we want to be these kinds of people? We were made for joy and we were made for wholeness in him. So brothers and sisters, let us choose joy. And let us choose wholeness. Would you guys pray with me? Father, what a gift we have to just be able to open up your word and just see something that just challenges us in such just a crazy way and to wrestle with it and then to just through this God have you show us the beautiful truth that like yeah we can't be these people but you God are inviting us that we might through you become these very people like you're inviting us on a journey to wholeness and to joy and God what a delight that it is that the creator of the universe is so personal to care about our heart and to care about our love for others and to care about our word. God, I pray that this wouldn't get lost on us. And I pray that as we go, that we wouldn't just be like, oh, that was really cool. That our lives would actually be changed tonight. And I pray that this would be a turning point for us where we, we tell the truth and we serve those who wrong us and we actually love them while doing it. God, I pray that we could be the people that this world is thirsting for so that we might delight in you more. God, we love you and we need you and we praise you always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.